Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Ras, thank you so much for joining me. Super excited to have you in the first episode of Playing It Safe. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I didn't realize this was the first episode. <laughs> the pressure is on now. Oh, dear. I can feel my anxiety rising. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> well, that's a good beginning for what we are going to be talking about. The theme of the podcast is Playing It Safe. And playing it safe are all those moves we do to handle our fears, worries, anxieties, and obsessions. Sometimes we approach situations with safety crutches, and other times we run away from them as quick as possible. So my first question is, how do you handle fear in general? Well, I handle fear in a variety of ways. When I'm at my worst, Fear pushes me around and holds me back and keeps me stuck. When I handle fear at my best, I kind of make room for it and allow it to be there. Actually, often channel it into what I'm doing. So it's it's like, you know, doing this podcast with you right now, even though I know you well and you're a friend and I've talked about that loads of times and, you know, ostensibly about, about a safer kind of situation, as you could imagine. My anxiety has gone through the roof. As soon as I do anything that involves kind of talking about act in a public forum, my, my anxiety goes, like, can you see the sweat on my hands here? Um, I'm trying to hold it up to the camera. Can you see my hands? You know, they're kind of red, they're dripping with sweat. I'm just, I'm showing my hands to Patricia on the Zoom. You can see that, right? Yeah, I can see that both of your hands look shiny. Shiny? And and what color? They both look red, bright red. And it's kind of got a sheen of sweat over both my hands here. And, you know, but I'm just allowing the anxiety to be there. And I'm actually channeling it into the discussion because, you know, anxiety comes with a, a lot of energy. When I handle it at its best, I can channel that energy into what I'm doing. I can use it almost as a well, an adrenaline rush, as a kind of uh, a, a charge. So this is me handling anxiety quite well right now. I appreciate that you are hanging in there with those sweaty hands while having this conversation with me. What about those moments when you don't handle your fears so well or so effectively? So when when I handle them at my worst, I get hooked by those thoughts. I stop writing. I close the computer. I do 101 other things instead of writing. I'll go to the fridge, eat food, watch television, play with the dog, do anything other than writing. That's when 
I'm not handling it well when I'm doing what ACT would call fusion and fusing with those thoughts, allowing them to dominate me and, and dictate my choices. But when I'm handling those thoughts well, then I kind of do what ACT calls defusion. I kind of, oh, okay, here's the I'm not good enough story. Here's my mind beating me up. Oh, there you go, mind. Oh, is that what you've got to say? Oh, this is, this is a load of rubbish, is it? Okay, well, thanks, mind. Thanks for your input. And I'm going to keep writing anyway, even though you think it's a load of rubbish. And so I'll have that kind of playful attitude. I recognize that, you know, this kind of pessimistic, negative, deeply self-critical thinking, it goes back as far as I can remember. Uh, and it's, it's never going to disappear. It's going to keep showing up. And the more challenging the task that I'm doing, the more likely it is that my mind's going to start telling me that stuff. So, so I allow it to be there and I focus on the writing, you know, I get my hands on the keyboard and I write and I write and I write. And uh, if I'm lucky, then I get into the zone and I start getting so absorbed in what I'm writing that I lose myself in it. So that's on a good day. Mm -hmm. On a bad day, it's just like digging a ditch. I just keep writing and keep writing, but there's no joy in it. It's just hard yakka. But the point is, I keep writing because writers write. And so if you want to, you know, I've, I've, I've read a stack of books on, on writing and there's three bits of advice that you see in, in every book on writing. And the, and the first bit of advice, which is gold, is that writers write. You know, if, you, if you're a writer, you're right. You'd, you know, the second bit of advice that every book has, which is just, you know, great, is that don't wait for inspiration. You know, if you wait till the day you feel inspired, you'll probably be waiting for a long, long time. You write even when you're not inspired, not in the mood, don't know, you, you just you just knuckle on down and do it. Mm-hmm. And the third bit of advice is don't write and edit at the same time because they use different parts of your brain. So if you're writing and then you start editing, then you, you tie yourself up. And so this is one of the dangers when, when my kind of inner critic uh, gets the better of me, I start going, oh God, I haven't written it well enough. Let's go back and rewrite that sentence. Let's rewrite that paragraph. Let's change that tweak there. And then I spend hours you know, on one paragraph, mm-hmm. which is just a waste of time. Uh, so when I'm handling it well, I'll kind of just push on and write and write and write. And then on a separate occasion, come back and edit. They're, they're quite different creative processes, writing and editing. So if you try to do them both at the same time, you get stuck. I love those writing tips. So I will definitely apply them into my writing. Now, I can see how you have this playful response with your mind when it comes with all types of blah, blah, blah. But you also mentioned that you practice allowing the feeling to be. So how does it look like when you allow the feeling to be, let's say, when you are writing a new chapter? Yeah, well, so the feeling when I start to write a new chapter, you know, before I start writing, there's usually excitement. I'm like, oh, I'm going to write this book and it's going to be, you know, exciting and fun and so forth. It's, it, it's almost delusional. It's like, it's like I've completely forgotten all the pain and suffering of all the previous books. It's like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun. And I actually sit down to write. Whoa, 
the anxiety just shows up for me. Uh, I feel it most prominently in my stomach. It's like this big knot in my stomach. And then I get this kind of tightness in my chest. And, and then usually pretty quickly afterwards, I get the sweaty hands, you know. So the so again, on a good day, I just apply act to myself. I drop anchor. I push my feet into the floor. I acknowledge here's anxiety. Here's knots in the stomach. Here's tightness in the chest. I come back to my values. Why am I writing this book? What matters about this? I come back to the concept of willingness. Am I willing to have these feelings of anxiety in order to do what's important. And, and then I'll just kind of, I sort of, I find it useful. I breathe into the anxiety as I breathe into it. It's like all this space opens up. I allow it to be there. The hardest thing actually is the sweaty hands because they interfere with the keyboard and the typing. So I have a, you can see I've got a little tissue here and I just kind of wipe the sweat off my hands and, and, and then I carry on, you know. Thank you for sharing how you handle all the challenges that come when you're writing. Given all those fears that pop up when you are writing, how do you know when a chapter is good enough that you can move on to the next one? That's a great question. I never know when it's good enough. I, I, I never do. I have a strong perfectionist streak. And if I let my mind rule me, then I would just be writing and rewriting and rewriting forever. You know, it's... Uh, you know, my my textbook act made simple. I started rewriting that in 2018, started the second edition. And God, I could not believe how bad the first edition was. As I, you know, I hadn't, as I was going through it, I was like, oh, did I really write that? That was so bad. That's so terrible. How could I have said this? Oh, look at that. Oh, you know, I was, uh, and so what I thought was going to be a quick rewrite turned out to be, you know, writing almost an entirely new book. And um, I'm actually experiencing the same thing again right now I'm, I'm writing the second edition of my book the reality slap and it's the same thing with every chapter i'm like oh this is terrible how could i have written this that's so bad and again i'm writing almost a whole new book so i never know when it's good enough i just i have a timeline i write as well as i can within that timeline and then i just okay here's the deadline over to the publisher if I didn't have those deadlines, it would take me <laughs> forever, I think. <laughs> Writing can be a lot of work. And there is also a lot that we have to do to handle our busy minds. So would you say that having a deadline helps you to move from one chapter to another one? Yeah, if you have a deadline, and of course, you know, it doesn't have to be a deadline from a publisher. It can be a self-imposed deadline, like uh, with The Happiness Trap. I, I didn't have a publisher while I was writing that, but I did set a deadline about when I was going to finish it. And so it's like, all right, well, this is as good as I can do with this deadline. Now it's time to get it out there. And, you know, the nice thing about writing is that if you do uh, get a publisher on board, then they'll provide an editor for you. And editors, you know, editors are the great unsung heroes. It's like, uh, if people can see my books before and after the editors, then they would be shocked. You know, editors contribute so much to help you trim the fat and say things differently and so forth. So, I, you know, I, I mean, just going back to your question, I don't know uh, when it's good enough. I, 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 don't, I don't think it ever is. It's just practicality. Here's the deadline. I can't work on this any longer. Time to 
hand it over or move on or move on to the next chapter. That's the only way I can make it work for me. I know that for me, if I have more time, I am going to be writing more or I'm going to be checking more my writing. So I completely agree that having a deadline helps us to keep moving with a project. Yeah, well, that and also the advice about not writing and editing simultaneously, right? That's a bad combo. Because if you feel like you've got more time, then you go, oh, I'll tweak this and I'll tweak that, you know. It's, I, I certainly when I, I don't, it's not so much anymore, but in my early days of writing, I was fearful of leaving a chapter badly written because I, my mind would go, what if I die and they discover this chapter and it's so bad, you know, I need to kind of at least write it a bit better so that if they find it, they'll go, oh, he was quite a good writer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know you gotta laugh, haven't you? It's kind of it's the, the things that your mind comes up with. It's crazy. It, it is crazy. So here's another question, and I'm curious again in terms of writing. Sometimes we cannot find the right metaphor, we cannot find the right word, and we start getting into these moments of nitpickiness. How do you handle that? Well, you know, when when I handle it well, I'll go all right this will do. I can always work on it later. When I handle it badly, I'll just be fiddling around and tweaking and changing. I, I kind of like to hear the words in my head and they um, feel like they've got a certain rhythm. And sometimes the rhythm in my head just isn't right. And then I'll just start, I can rewrite a sentence 10 times, just trying to get the rhythm of the words. And then I'll look at it the next day and go, Oh no, it's still not right. You know, uh, Whereas, and so that's kind of the perfectionism creeping in, you know, so whereas if I can notice that, all right, maybe the rhythm's not perfect. It's okay. You know, just carry on, just carry on. So when I'm really in the flow, I quite often in a first draft have, I'll have bits of writing where I'll just write, you need a good metaphor here. Mm -hmm. uh, And then I'll just carry on, or you need a good story here. Or I'll say this explanation needs to be better, blah, 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 and then just carry on writing uh, because it's much better to come back to it later. Uh, if I get caught up on trying to get it right, then it, it, it can take up a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't anymore, but for a long time, I used to have a, a little stick it note uh, by the side of my computer, which was a quote from Ernest Hemingway, which said, the first draft of anything is shit. Uh, <laughs> And any time I was kind of feeling, oh, this is shit, I'd look at that quote and I'd go, well, Ernest Hemingway said it would be. So, you know, that's all right. <laughs> it's manageable if Ernest Hemingway say it. <laughs> and there's also a, there's a famous Australian author called Peter Carey. And one of his quotes I really like, he said, writing is being willing to be stupid and make mistakes. Mm. You know, so if, if I can hold on to those things, it's a lot better. And what about when the inner critic shows up? Yeah, I just, well, again, when I handle it well, I go, all right, okay, here's your inner critic and you know this stuff. Yeah, your your mind's not satisfied. And of course, these feelings are there and you know what to do. (laughs) Let them be there and carry on. So it's just allowing the thoughts and feelings to be as they are, taking action, doing what matters. Mm-hmm. That's when I don't handle it well. I get hooked and I start obsessing and ruminating and worrying and pacing up and down. And then usually what I then do is fall into comfort eating. I kind of 
chocolate or there's a there's a particular type of australian biscuit called a tim tam a uh, chocolate coated biscuit and i i am very partial to double coated chocolate tim tams uh, which you know logically and rationally i know is not going to help my anxiety but they do taste good it's chocolate you cannot go wrong with chocolate <laughs> So, yeah, but it, I mean, ACT is so useful with this stuff. I, I think, I don't think we're, you know, without ACT, I'm not sure how much writing I would have ever done, really. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful move to learn to sit with the yucky stuff that shows up when we are doing what matters. So I think ACT really invites us to exercise and build that muscle of acceptance. Now, here's another writing question. How do you know when enough is enough? For me, there's never enough. It's like every single book. I've always wanted to write more, felt that there's stuff I've missed out, stuff that needs to go in. So it's nice now with the advent of digital technology. So with Act Made Simple, the second edition, I, I actually created a, an extra PDF uh, book with an additional 40,000 words of all the stuff that I couldn't fit into the proper published textbook. So uh, in fact, I'm doing the same thing now with the second edition of the Reality Slap. I'm also writing a, a free ebook that goes with it to flesh it out. So it's a lot easier now, but it was a lot harder in the old days before you could do that. And again, it's just all right. It's just, I guess that that is the benefit of limits. You know, there are limits. There's only so much I can do. So let's honor the limits. You know, if the contract says 50,000 words, then that's, I have to work within it. What would be your advice for a person that gets stuck with analysis paralysis when writing? Well, uh, you know, the, the first thing is to, is to notice it. That's the that's easy to say and incredibly hard to do because when we get caught up in analysis paralysis, we we lose touch with everything else. We we tend to go on automatic pilot. But sooner or later, you will be able to notice that you're caught up in it. Uh, and the moment you notice it, then put a name to it. Say, ah, here's analysis paralysis, or here's the not good enough story. Or, ah, I'm noticing perfectionism, or I'm noticing my mind, you know, racing around in circles here. And so kind of just noticing and naming the experience usually helps you unhook a little bit from it, gives you a little bit of distance from it. And then the next step, you know, I would usually uh, drop anchor. Uh, it's a kind of mindful grounding practice that is is based on three steps that you can remember with the acronym ACE. So the A is for acknowledge your inner experience, acknowledge your thoughts and feelings, acknowledge the stuff that's showing up inside you, which you've already started to do by noticing and naming those thoughts. The C is for come back into your body or connect with your body. And so I would usually do that through, you know, stretching or moving or if I'm at the computer, just sitting up straight and pushing my feet into the floor, maybe taking a deep breath. And then the E is for engage in the world or engage in what you're doing. Uh, And so then I would refocus my attention, acknowledging the thoughts and feelings coming back into the body. And then what am I doing right here, right now? Where do I want my attention to go? What's important? And engage in, in the activity at hand. Mm-hmm. And, and you may have to repeat that over and over and over again. 
And I call that dropping anchor because, you know, when a, when a boat's in the harbor, uh, it will just naturally drift off, drift out to sea. And we have to drop anchor to keep the boat um, in the harbor, uh, especially if there's a big storm blowing. I love the acronym ACE. Thank you for sharing it. Now, what about people that try to handle their analysis paralysis by listing all the positive things they have done before? What's your take on that? Well, you can try it. <laughs> I've tried it. I think if people haven't tried it, they should try it. You know, if you've never tried doing that, but most of us have tried that. You know, this is the this is the common sense advice that you get from friends and family, and and uh, so most of us have tried that, and we know what happens. You know, it's like. Uh, if you're lucky, you might feel good for a moment, but it, it's not going to stop your mind from coming back. If it's not good enough, try harder. Um, but a lot of the time, it, it doesn't even give you a, sh a short burst of feeling good. It's just uh, it's just like you're, you're now caught in an argument between two parts of your mind. You've got, you know, it, it, I often compare it as to, you know, it's like there's a radio doom and gloom and it's playing and broadcasting all the negative stuff and it's really bothering you so you bring in a second radio which is radio positive and you're kind of hoping that radio positive will drown out radio negative but it's very hard to focus on what you're doing while you've got two radios playing two different channels and so you know the act approach is well just let the radio play on in the background and focus your attention on what you're doing and i often use the analogy with clients you know have you ever been in a restaurant and there's a loud voice and 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 someone was saying something that you really didn't like or their voice was really annoying you the more you focus on their voice the more it bothers you uh, what happens if you try to ignore that voice what happens if you try to not hear it the more you try to not hear it or ignore it actually the more it bothers you so that doesn't work either uh, the best thing is to just acknowledge, okay, there's a loud voice here. Someone's talking about stuff that's, you know, I don't particularly want to hear, but that's what's going on right now. So I'll let them chatter away and bring my attention back to the food that I'm eating, the person I'm socializing with. And what tends to happen then is as you get more and more engaged in, in what you're doing, that voice fades into the background. And it may come back, you know, and it's just like doing the same thing with our own voice in our own head. One of the benefits of the fusion is that it really creates this space, this separation between the mind going blah, 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 and what we really want to do. I also think that it feels very counterintuitive because there is a lot of messages about how we shouldn't have negative thoughts, how we should always focus on the positive thoughts, and how we should fight back every time we have a negative thought. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still a, that's the common sense approach, really. And, you know, obviously, positive thinking has, has kind of been around for a long time. And it's still, you know, the number one most popular psychological approach out there. Let's think positively. Let's kind of push these negative thoughts away. Let's ramp up the positive thoughts. Uh, and there's no doubt that at times that's useful for people. When's it most likely to be useful when you're not really in a very challenging, stressful situation, when you're already feeling, you know, quite good, where you're not really dealing with anything that kind of steps you out of your comfort zone? 
where is that not likely to be very useful when you're in a really challenging situation, when you're out of your comfort zone, where you're really kind of the, the, the pressure is on. And, and so we've probably all experienced there's times that that does help, but there's a whole lot of times that it either doesn't help or it actually makes things worse. You know, you start telling yourself positive things. I'm a good person. And then your mind comes back and says, no, you're not. What about the time you did this? What about the time you did that? You know, so the ACT approach, as you say, it's, it's counterintuitive and it's countercultural. It's certainly certainly not a part of mainstream Western culture, this idea of just letting your thoughts be there without buying into them. But boy, is it powerful if we can make that shift. It's definitely a big shift. I know for me, on a personal level, learning to watch my thoughts without fighting them or pushing them away has really allowed me to focus more and think more about the stuff that I want to think about. Now, sometimes people struggle figuring out when and how to use self-talk. What would you say about that? Well, yeah, so there's a lot of self-talk in ACT. Um, Most obviously, values. Values are a form of self-talk where you remind yourself what's important to me, what I want to stand for, what matters to me. Self-talk in ACT may include reminding yourself of your goals, your action plans, your strategies. Self-talking act often involves kind of acknowledging your thoughts and feelings. You know, I'm noticing anxiety. Here's my mind worrying. Um, Self-talking act often is compassionate self-talk, saying kind things to yourself. You know, this really hurts. Can I be kind to myself? This is something I have in common with all human beings. So there's a lot of self-talking act, but it, it... There's no self-talking act that is designed to try to control your feelings or try to get rid of unwanted negative thoughts. Uh, Self-talking act serves different purposes, uh, helping you live your values, set goals, take actions, practice self-compassion, acknowledge and accept uh, your thoughts and feelings. I appreciate the distinction you're making on when and how to use self-talk. I have more questions. No. No, it's not okay. Not okay. I've had enough. Oh, boy. Interview over. (laughs) You are so bobo. Let me ask about the reality slap. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned that you are writing the second edition of the reality slap. Can we get a preview of it? There's um, a lot more emphasis on uh, on grief and grieving rituals and dealing with all the the kind of losses and and the different stages of grieving. And... There's a lot more practical stuff. I guess you were talking, you were asking before, how do you know when you've put enough into a chapter? Well, certainly as I'm reading the book from the perspective of rewriting it, I'm seeing all sorts of areas where I've skipped over stuff, skimmed through stuff, touched on stuff very lightly, and and so put a whole lot more into into explaining kind of key concepts and more depth in the exercises included in the book, more examples of clients that have been through a wide variety of different reality slaps so people can see, you know, how it plays out with death, how it plays out with chronic illness, how it plays out with loss of a job, how it plays out with divorce. So giving people a a, a number of different stories about how reality slaps affect us and how we might deal with them. 
And, you know, the, the other thing is in the first edition of the book, I spoke a lot about my son. And now that he's a strapping, healthy young man of 14, he's decided that he doesn't want to be in the book anymore. So I pulled his story out of the book, and which has made room for, for other stories as well. I appreciate that you're thinking about the different types of reality slaps we go through and that you're including them in the new edition of the reality slap. Thank you so much for sharing these previews and I can't wait to read the book. Lovely. One last question. If you were to have a cup of coffee with any person you want today, who will that person be and why? Is that living or, or, or dead or both? That's a great question. <laughs> Let's say living. Living. Okay. And, and mm, gosh, so a cup of, does it have to be coffee? Could it be beer or? Fine. It can be a beer or tea. Do you know, I, I think it would probably be the Dalai Lama, I think. Yeah, either the Dalai Lama or Jacinda Ardern. I find both of those incredibly inspiring people. Mm-hmm. And if you could have a cup of coffee or tea or beer with a person who is dead, who will that person be? Are we allowed to have interpreters? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, if we were allowed to have interpreters, I'd certainly want to have a, a chat to, to Jesus. He's, a, he's an interesting uh, a guy, to say the least. Russ, thank you so much for chatting with me. It was such a treat and I can't wait to have you back again. Lovely. Thanks very much. Okay, abrazos. Abrazos. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingwithsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing with safe actions. See you soon!